Welcome to a special, indeed first of its kind, episode of Talking Feds. This is Harry Littman. I'm a former U.S. Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General and a current Washington Post columnist. We conceived this podcast in the first place as a more realistic and lively roundtable among expert commentators whose contributions on TV so often are limited to 15 to 30 second sound bites. Our sort of private image was to imagine we're all in our favorite booth at the back of our favorite bar on Friday at 5.30 and the conversation is just flowing naturally. And that inevitably would lead to this more sort of dynamic and loose and sometimes funny conversation that we all knew was realistic and we had had as federal officials, but that are never replicated in the normal media coverage. Well, today's episode takes that conceit and takes it a step further. I'm the regular host for all these roundtables, and I do what I can to structure an interesting conversation and put my own two cents in as well. But I wanted to try for the first time actually to take myself out of it and have the remaining feds dive into a completely unmediated discussion as they really might do on their own. And it made sense to do this for a subject matter for which I'd be somewhat out of my depth and play less of a host role anyway. So here today you have the perfect solution. Today's episode focuses on national security and a discussion among three of the country's most knowledgeable and experienced former officials, all known well to podcast and TV audiences. So we are extremely fortunate for this experimental Talking Feds to have first Frank Figliuzzi, who is a charter Fed, and as you know, a former FBI assistant director and now an NBC News national security contributor. Malcolm Nance, a returning Fed, who's a longtime counterterrorist Navy officer and foreign policy analyst now, uh, even since leaving the service, and an author of many books. The latest, The Plot to Betray America, is a richly detailed argument of the Russian campaign to secure influence over Donald Trump. Finally, Juliet Kayyem, a first-time visitor to Talking Feds. Juliet, thanks very much for coming. She is the co-founder and CEO of GripMobility.com. She's a Harvard professor and a CNN analyst, and she is as well former official at the Department of Homeland Security, as well as the best-selling author of the book, Security Mom. Okay, so all of them kindly agreed to be guinea pigs for this podcast. I asked them all to basically pretend they're around the table with pizza and beer and just talking among themselves. And they produced, as you'll hear, a fantastic discussion that is both sophisticated, given their great expertise, but also very accessible. They chose to focus on the real big picture issues that drive or should drive the nation's national security policy in 2020 and asked whether new challenges, such as the Russian interference in the 2016 election, call for some kind of paradigm shift in national security policy of the sort the intelligence community underwent after 9-11. So imagine, please, you, like I, 
uh, were flies on the wall of the double agent bar and grill, the lead hangout for national security experts. And as the podcast fades in, Frank Figliuzzi leads off the discussion. Yeah. So, look, I've been so immersed, as I know all of us have, on dealing with the minutiae and the details of the daily breaking news and commenting on that and keeping up with 300 and 400 page reports that really when Harry said, hey, I, I want I want a bunch of folks to just talk about big picture national security ramifications, I really came up for air um, and started thinking less like a TV commentator and more like my former job as FBI assistant director for counterintelligence. And I started thinking about, you know, 30,000 feet level, strategic change in organization. And, and what I've come up with, I want you guys to kind of pulse check me on whether this is just too dramatic a statement or not. But I, I really came up with my relationship between what we're experiencing right now in this country and my time in the Bureau during 9-11, just in the aftermath of 9-11, and the wake-up call that the 9-11 attacks were to the nation on the issue of counterterrorism and the massive, massive change it required in the intel community and the FBI, unprecedented change. You know, we created DHS. We did all kinds of things. The FBI just swerved its entire mission and prioritization. And I, I'm feeling like that needs to happen on a counterintelligence national security level based on the threats to our democracy we're seeing now. But I tell me if I got that wrong or and and if you have knowledge of similar seismic shifts occurring in organizations that will position us better to prevent things like hacking social media propaganda, you know, campaign problems and, and the such. I think what you're feeling is that after 9-11, we all had this, this sensation we were completely behind the eight ball and taken over, you know, by by an opponent who has managed to outmaneuver us in such a way that the country itself is ends up like we're damaged. I mean, only in 9-11, we could see the physical damage. Uh, I know that when I really early on called this as a Russian intelligence operation, the hacking of the 2016 election, I was mocked roundly. I mean, from from the very day that I said it, and then within 24 hours, Donald Trump came out and called on the Russians to hack, help him again. So, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that we're in this period where, you know, the ruins are still smoldering and people are trying to get an idea of what they should do. But the enemy there was so absolutely easy to spot. I mean, resources and operations that I had worked on for decades were, were just focused like a laser on Al-Qaeda and we even knew who they were and what their capacity for threat was. This is a new world. I cannot convince people uh, in media even that this is a long-term Russian intelligence operation, that the Russians had actually published papers and documents on information warfare in which they would actually change the mindset of a target population in order to essentially defeat them in an information war so that they wouldn't have to go to a hot war. And I actually had a, a comment by, uh, I think it was Matt Taibbi uh, from Rolling Stone contacted me and said, where did you get that drivel? And I said, the NATO handbook on Russian information warfare operations. 
but no one believes it. And I've got one third of my country flat out will not believe a word that's going to be said today. So we're in really serious trouble. I mean, I have two thoughts. I think, Frank, Frank, I think you're right. I mean, the first is looking at what's going on through the lens of the 64,000 foot level, especially we're we're talking, you know, before the big impeachment vote, who knows what's going to happen, but just, you know, beginning to view as I have, because I was definitely not public about my thoughts about impeachment for a long while. I sort of viewed it as a political thing. And then I realized that was the politics winning is that is the extent to which a vote for impeachment is really a vote about national security deterrence and homeland security deterrence. It is, it is a way of sort of naming and shaming the enemy, whether it's internal, like Trump asking for foreign assistance or external foreign influence in our elections. And that any failure to make clear that at least some element of this country is trying to deter this is a really bad sign. So I'm, whatever the win loss is, you know, in the Senate, I honestly could care less at this stage. I mean, I care, but I just, that seems to me less relevant than making a statement about, you know, good old fashioned counterintelligence deterrence. I think I come from this from a different background just because I, I've worked in the homeland. So I, you know, worked on with, with localities and states. I was a state homeland security advisor and then, you know, essentially managed the states and localities and their governance systems um, when I was in the Obama administration. And so my fear is, is that this is going to seem so foreign to localities and states and the potential that they will just sort of view this as, well, this is sort of like a war. So I can, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I've got other issues. I've got fires to deal with and crime and schools and whatever else. And I think because of the absence of White House interest in preparing, you know, the sort of grassroots, the basic local element. And I mean, and that, that makes me worried for a variety of reasons. One is because if you think about 2020, there's going to be all sorts of shenanigans, but certainly one that I uh, have worried about and written about and one that um, the intelligence community is sort of hinting about now is that some foreign entity won't go for uh, the election system. That's that's so obvious, right? That's so 2016, but that you would go for disrupting the support system behind um, how people vote. So you want to give Michigan to Donald Trump, suppress 20,000 votes in Detroit, uh, African-American votes in Detroit, and I just got you Michigan for Trump. How do I do that? I have fake news about an active shooter. I get into the city infrastructure and critical infrastructure and close a bunch of signals in the middle of major transportation areas. I, I do stuff like that that would just... That is a that is a form of voter suppression, right? It is a form of telling of making it such a hassle. So, um, I do think we not only have a sort of a nine eleven problem with the federal apparatus, we also have a, a homeland problem with the local and state apparatus. I think where Frank's coming from is sort of equal to where this. Imagine Timothy McVeigh doing the Oklahoma City bombing, destroying the building. And then the entire state infrastructure aligned with him on his conspiracy theory that Waco is the center of the universe and that the Turner Diaries should be the operating policy of the United States government. And then you have the president of the United States supporting that. And that's why I think Frank feels like the world and counterintelligence is crazy. 
because we know a foreign power has attacked us. We know that they have domestic allies. In any other time in American history, they would have been called fifth columnists. You know, um, now to contend with it at the party level and one, you know, 65 million Americans supporting our opponents. We're simultaneously experiencing an insider threat and an external threat, and it has multiple heads to it. And I feel like there's a gap here. And so, again, putting my kind of senior executive FBI hat on, we've heard reporting, and there's not a lot there, that the Bureau is has assembled task forces, working groups, multidisciplinary, that, you know, they realize this is a counterintel slash cyber slash criminal problem. We've heard about even, you know, domestic uh, white hate group task forces at the Bureau. But I just don't think that we're the our infrastructure is set up to deal with what we're looking at. And the adversary has found gaps. And you, you know, you've all mentioned some of the gaps, including election security and, and peripheral election security. And so the question that I have is, we all seem to be in agreement. This is a national security threat. It's um, It may even be on a similar plane to the threat we faced following uh, 9-11. But again, as, as you all have said, we saw the damage. We saw the adversary. We all aligned fairly quickly on it. And uh, we've gotten really good at it. And now I feel like we're not reacting. And, and part of it is I don't think we have an attorney general or anybody at the White House who is saying, or or the Congress, here's the money, here's the mandate, here's the mission. We clearly had that in droves after 9-11, and some would say we even had a knee-jerk reaction after 9-11, but I'm not seeing anything close to that yet. And so if the FBI or DHS were to approach the White House and say, we need X, Y, Z, we'd hear McConnell saying, um, right. hey, the elections are in the hands of the state, Don't don't bother me with that kind of a thing. And I- Let's assume things could get done. In what areas should we be doing them? Is it social media propaganda, hacking? I, I even, you know, I, look at the debate that's going on with uh, the IG report and the attorney general over how to handle threats to a campaign. What do you do when you think people around a candidate are bad? Um, and we're talking about, you know, changing the rules on allowing the FBI to, to do that independently. What would you do if you're an agency head at this point? I would have to work around the president. I would have to work to where, you know, information operations and counter operations against the foreign adversary would not be detected by the White House. And it would have to be within the mandate of, let's say, the NSA's collection or or human intelligence collection overseas for the CIA. But this is why, we're, you know, you got to look at this whole story from the 65,000 foot level. We are in a strategic struggle for the soul of America that has been placed at threat by an adversary. And they now have a component of our national population that will thwart anything you want to do at the Bureau or over at Homeland Security or the attorney general will just stop it. And, you know, how do you deal with that conundrum? I mean, I think this is I, this is why it's, you know, the combination of, you know, like layered defenses in some ways. This is why the vote to impeach is absolutely necessary if just for even though we know tr- Donald Trump is not stopping from doing it to essentially try to shame others um, and to also remember, give support to the next future whistleblower that this behavior is unacceptable and that there is an app, you know, there's an apparatus that would be that that wants to hear this. Right. So 
So you could think about that as one piece. I do think um, there is training going on on the local level, especially urban areas where the suppression of minority vote in these sort of unique ways as compared to the traditional ways um, is a real concern. You know, all you really need to do is hit, you know, Philadelphia, Detroit, and you know, one other, you know, somewhere in Florida, and and, and it, it's easily done. And so there is a lot going on on training on the mayoral level, um, which I think is key because uh, they're going to be the ones who are going to have to get lawyers in to extend voting times, have extra generators if electricity goes down, have extra traffic cops. I know this seems like not very heady for people who normally listen to, to this podcast, but, you know, this is what people like me think about. Can I get more traffic cops if, uh, if um, uh, you know, if the, if the signals go down? Um, and then, you know, just this slow trickle of national security Republicans that are starting to come out and recognize that, impe- you know, that, that we do have a threat, uh, in the homeland at this stage. Wow. I, I look, look at what the conversation we're, we're having is astounding to me because we we're essentially making an, an implicit assumption, which is the threat's not going away. The, the, yeah. the leadership of the nation is part of the problem. And we are doing things now like talking about, um, getting traffic flowing to voting and polling places because something bad's going to happen. It's, it, I'm glad yeah. it's, I'm glad that that planning is going on. But if anybody had told me a few years ago, Hey, um, the FBI, CIA, DHS and DOJ are essentially going to be handcuffed and stymied and it's going to be up to localities and private sector and maybe some congressional investigations to get anything done. I would have said, what, what the hell happened to the, to the yeah. country? And, yeah. and here we are. Oh, it's going to get much worse. I mean, my estimation. The, the worst case scenario that could happen this year is not that people are going to hack voting machines. Uh, I've been warning about that for three years, that that's not where the really good hacking should come in. That would be at the state, uh, you know, state uh, laptop or, or computer that alleys all the counties. And whoever would go at that, let's say North Korea decides they want Trump as president, uh, all they have to do is just create mayhem with the tallies. You know, add 400,000 votes to a Democrat in, in districts that Trump obviously won, and you will have the makings of civil war the next day. I mean, or nullification of an election. And, it would, and the North Koreans would do it boldly, you know, because they know that no retaliation will come right. from the White right. House or the Iranians or the Russians or subcontractor and, you know, intelligence hackers can do it to literally throw the United States in the Civil War. And that's where my head goes, because I don't see anyone within this government that is going to do anything other than call a halt to the electoral process, because it's so vulnerable to miss, you know, direction and, and, and using misinformation. When all that has to do is happen one time in one precinct that is decisive and and openly seen as a hacking from a foreign power. And I think the entire nation's heart will fibrillate. Yeah. It'll just, it'll lose its rhythm. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it, there's a couple of points there that you've made that we could talk, I, I think, for hours about, which is, uh, n- number one, why is our federal election system in the hands of state and municipal governments? And why essentially is our form of democracy through free elections in the hands of three private companies that manufactures all of the voting equipment of all kinds 
And one of those private companies, ESNS, has 60% of the market share in the United States. And, and you know what those companies say about uh, the fail-safe backup for their systems if they, if they go wrong? That everybody should have paper backups. Pa- yeah, yeah. That, that's the answer. So, you know, here we are. Everything's in the hands of three companies, state and local governments who do things a, a thousand different ways. And then I yeah. like the point Malcolm made also about we're all squarely focused on Russia, but that's really dangerous because there are a handful mm-hmm. of countries who want to hurt us, have the capability of doing it, <clears throat> and certainly North Korea, Iran, and others, uh, China, of course, can do it. And we'll all be sitting there going, well, we were we were worried about Russia. So it's still back to the the bigger picture of what would we do about it? Let's say we had a president who said, go for it, do whatever you need to protect us and not let any of this happen again. And I, I, I've got an idea. I'm focused on the a concern about the independence and neutrality of the FBI after the IG report and with this attorney general. By that, I mean, we've heard the, even the IG and certainly the AG say, you know, when you've got these sensitive cases on a campaign and you've got a candidate concern, this needs to go much higher up at DOJ to get approved. And we've even heard John mm-hmm. Durham, the U.S. Attorney of Connecticut, issue a statement saying, I, I've, I've got a problem you know, with what the IG said. And the IG said, well, he's, his problem is about predication for the case. And, but here's the thing. If you require the attorney general to approve an FBI case on a candidate, yeah. you lose the independence and objectivity of the FBI. And I'm, I'm really worried about that. So one of the things I, I'm wondering about and see what you think about this is, should there be a vetting process, not not for a candidate, because I, I got that. We're a democracy. People need to vote for who they want to vote for. But the people around that pre, that candidate, why wouldn't we want to provide a package to the candidate saying, just FYI, um, this guy Manafort, uh, this guy Stone, uh, this guy Flynn, well, we did that to some degree, all uh, do this early on, just to let you know, here's a little background check for your your people. Is that something we should be thinking about, just vetting the campaign staff and where they're coming from and then Mm -hmm. telling the candidate about it? You know, I think that there needs to be an infrastructure that's designed to protect the nation uh, in an administration that would be friendly to this, right? Hopefully the next administration, Congress decides that there needs to be a national election election security process or or organization. We could call it the National Election Security Agency, right? And they would take over or provide the states with the infrastructure for free and fair elections. They want to get good pointers, they should go to the United Nations. The UN is actually great at doing paper elections and taking the privatization of these machines out of their hands. I mean, I think you're right, Frank. I think every voting machine in the United States should be the responsibility of the government of the United States, not 50 individual organizations that, that, as we've already seen, can you know manipulate the electoral process to their own benefit. But it would require, first step, the commander-in-chief to assume that what has happened between 2016 and 2020 was actually an attack on the United States, which has damaged our national security. It has corroded the foundations of our constitution and that we need to make an all government effort to ensure that every vote in America is fair and secure. Whether you have to use NSA, DHS, 
and subcontractors to get together to secure the machine and then make sure it prints you a paper ballot, you know, in a receipt. So that would cost us less than uh, all the JDAM bombs that were dropped just a month in Afghanistan. Julia, what do you what do you think of that? I'd be the last person in the world to to recommend the creation of a separate agency or group because I'm anti bureaucrat. But but I got to tell you, I got to tell you, I think I think Malcolm's onto something about it. Doesn't necessarily have to be a, a separate standalone agency, but I, th- this is the security of our democracy, and I, I wonder. Yeah, no, I think it's the notion of homeland security was always right that multiple threats or what we call all hazards could hit the homeland at any time and we and that that had been true it's not like 9-11 was the first time we ever thought about this I mean we had civil defense we had domestic preparedness which the FBI was very involved with Um, but from about 2001 to 2005 we had this sort of you know myopic focus on to put it crudely, you know, stopping 19 guys from getting on four airplanes. That was a good focus. Um, In my world of Homeland Security, you know, um, 2005 represents a pivot, a course correction, because, of course, that's when Hurricane Katrina happens. And we realize like a nation that's too focused on one threat is going to, you know, let a city drown, right? Not have the capacity to, to stop a city from drowning. And so I do think that we don't need a new agency. I think partially because the tools to deal with this threat already exist. It's just the focus. So whether that and, you know, and just view it as part of an all hazards response, it has to be a focus. Election security is not even on the table right now. We, we've we subsumed it into cybersecurity. No, no, no. It's very different. Right. And in particular, it's very different because you have this sort of local state element to it, right? We have a governance system. You know, I tell my students that America was built uh, unsafe by design, right? You, you, you could not have structured a governance system less safe than us, right? 50, you know, 50 governors, kings and queens into themselves, you know, 300 major urban mayors, each of them with uh, egos and, 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 and checkbooks. You know, I mean, you just, you, you, so what you have to think about is, well, how can a federal agency support um, the those those local and state efforts? I don't think you're going to get election elections um, out of, you know, the Tenth Amendment, which guarantees them to the states. But I do think that you can get states and localities as engaged on this issue as they were, to your first point, Frank, on 9-11 after that attack. But it, it's not coming from the White House. It has to come from, from somewhere else. And that's I think that's a challenge for all yeah. of us. And, and of course, after 9-11, you know this best, Juliet, the money flowed uh, to the states. In fact, yeah. you know, some, yeah. some there's a lot of debate about certain cities getting too much money from, 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 the, from the feds. So, yeah, and we so we're, we're all sitting here talking about, I guess I'm I, I'm to be faulted for trying to think of the solutions, you know, for agency heads when in reality, as everyone has said, there's no mandate or support for this right now under this administration. Meanwhile, we, we're sitting back watching this happen. Um, it's going on today in all aspects. And and it's even as Malcolm said, it's going to get worse in, in part because we may well have a president who is impeached but exonerated, quote unquote, by the Senate, feels emboldened to continue this. Our adver- our foreign adversaries will therefore feel even more emboldened to keep doing it. I- again, I say the countries outside of, of Russia, the other threats are looking at this going, shoot, we, we could have done that. And they'll learn lessons from the sloppiness of the Russians having done it. 
and they'll they'll do it slightly differently. And meanwhile, you know, the bureau's got a cyber division and a counterintelligence division yeah. and a counterterrorism division, kind of these stovepipes. And I don't see anybody saying break the mold. We got to do this differently. Can I take you back to the stratosphere? Because fundamentally, it would be great to talk about, you know, giving the Bureau more money in counterintelligence or refocusing the terrorism task force or or giving DHS more authority. But if the nation fundamentally does not believe, one third of us do not believe that our strategic near-peer adversary, adversary, uh, Russia, has anything to do with the 2016 election or the 2020 election or any activities that they do as nefarious because that one third of the American population has ideologically aligned themselves with Russia's champion in the United States. Therefore, the United States is going through a a micro ideological civil war where one third of the nation believes our adversaries propaganda and acts on it. And two thirds of the country um, don't, but their media is not even considered part of the reality of that third of the nation that controls the country. I mean, we, we literally cannot operate if we don't have a belief in the same reality of what America is. We have all seen it for 242 years, because I'm excluding the last couple of years, has now been corrupted. And it's been corrupted through the, you know, the assistance of a foreign power, but it was mainly internal. So until we believe we are under attack, until we believe America's democracy needs to be defended, until we believe that elections are at risk, it will only be seen as partisan. Senior leadership, the FBI and the counterintelligence division will get gutted out of there. DHS will have all of its mandate moved to building a wall and rounding up illegal immigrants. Uh, NSA and CIA will be neutered, you know, around the world. And I wish I was joking because all of this has happened. Yeah. And, and you know, I keep coming back to 9-11 attacks and trying to draw that uh, that analogy. And unfortunately, before 9-11, we all know people who were screaming and hollering about this guy called Osama bin Laden. One of them was uh, an FBI senior executive named John O'Neill, who kept saying he's going to hurt us. And people were essentially ignoring him. And so I fear that what needs to happen before we all get on the same page is something even worse than what we're seeing. It, 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 it As Malcolm said, if people are going to have to change their mindset and start becoming believers in the threat, the threat may have to get that much more worse. And and I I, I hate to even envision what that looks like. But yeah, and but but that may that may have to happen before we see a wholesale change in how we deal with the threat. The problem is is that ideologically the United States is tilting towards autocracy. And and where people believe that the, there is a unitary leadership in this country that we have essentially a monarch. Everything that John Adams and uh, you know Thomas Jefferson and George Washington warned about is coming to fruition here. And so, if we can't secure our elections, and it requires you know us to have a an, an 
another electoral disaster where the confidence in our electoral systems are now no longer believed in. That's the day that we stop being a constitutional republic and become essentially a constitutional autocracy where we have the trappings of, of rights for some people, but we essentially go to uh, you know, leadership by a dictator. And I don't want to get there. I think we have 10 months to unscrew this problem. Because let me tell you something. I ran a super secret Al-Qaeda school from 1996 to 2001. And nobody was listening to us except JSOC, right? So, you know, this is the same thing. We're, we're, I don't want to have 9-11 with American democracy, which is why I'm on TV shouting all the time and, and being called a conspiracy theorist, even though every branch of the intelligence apparatus is saying the exact same thing. Part of that is, that's why I think what's going on right now, the impeachment process really does need to be reframed or is beginning to be reframed. I think I think Adam Schiff was successful in doing that after the hearings there, not as a Ukraine issue. So I have to be honest with you as a, you know, domestic oriented person. I loved the witnesses. They were fantastic, you know, talking about Ukraine and, you know, it's fledgling democracy. That's all great. And they all seem so interesting. But I'm, you know, I was sitting there watching. I'm like, what about my fledgling democracy, the United States? And I thought, Adam Schiff was good at reorienting it to this isn't about Ukraine. Uh, you know, Trump can punch down to any country. It was probably what he did with Lebanon and just got caught. Ukraine was unique, but nonetheless, probably not alone. And it's really about election security. And we and I just think reframing what's going on as not a fight about the past 2016 or or even what happened this summer, but solely a fight about 2020. It's a simplicity that I think the American public can get. It's it's a short term war because we know, it, you know, in November and it's a fight, you know, in, in, in that way, rather than you know, Mueller was sort of whatever one thinks about what Mueller came out with. You know, it was it was always about the past, although he if you read it, he talked a lot about the future. But it was always about what conduct had happened in the past. And I, you know, I agree with you, Malcolm, that, you know, I, I'm probably less I'm probably less pessimistic on sort of where the majority of Americans are. I do. I, but I think just the way our electoral system works, it it benefits the autocratic autocrat sentiment. Um, but I do think, you know, sometimes when I do get down, I just think all we freaking need is, you know, 80,000 votes in three states, right? That, that history would have been different. And, um, and that tactical focus on, okay, what are your, you know, this is what, you know, I hope the U.S. Conference of Mayors is doing or saying, what are my 10 cities I'm worried about for voter suppression in a, in a, you know, foreign intelligence or, you know, or other that I'm worried about in terms of minority voter suppression, which will impact an overall state. So like in Boston, it doesn't matter. You know, Los Angeles, it doesn't really matter. Detroit matters. And that, that's the kind of focus I would have in the next 10 months. Because if I'm if I'm the Russians, I'm 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 thinking, how do I keep my 60,000 or 80,000 votes? I don't need to win. I don't need to win the popular vote. I just need to get those votes. What we have been losing and what we could lose here is America itself. There's one third of the country believes they have a version of America in which 
you know, Donald Trump can do anything he wants lawlessly. And they, they think that's the America that they want to live in. And it's the other two thirds of the country that recognizes that has never been how America was ever. You know, George Washington stayed two terms and, you know, and set the terms for how long a president should do and the level of decency and dignity of the office. All of these norms are gone. The problem is there's also, as Frank said, this counterintelligence component of this, of which we don't know what the president of the United States is saying to the uh, leader of our nearest peer adversary, an ex-KGB officer. But it appears that there is something in there that impacts the president's decision-making. He works within a Russian meta-narrative to where everything benefits Russia first. And until we come to the end of that struggle, and I don't think we're going to meet that with this impeachment, this nation is at the greatest risk since, I don't know, well, and I, So I, this is, this, you just said something that got, really got my attention as a CIA guy. And, and that is, <clears throat> I, I wonder, there's been much discussion about whether, you know, Bob Mueller served us well or not in the, as a special counsel. And I, I now we have a little bit of breathing room, not much um, from that time of the investigation, I'm wondering if the, his time and effort would have been much better spent on the CI question because he got caught in this trap of the, 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 the infamous memo that exists at DOJ that says you can't indict a sitting president and that, that shaped his whole investigation and he was looking for criminality, criminality, criminality. Okay, great. And we've got nowhere on that. But I think the nation needs an answer on the CI question. I think we need to understand what has gone on between Trump and the Russians. You know, because of the nature of CI, that got that got deep sixed. I doubt that case is still going in in the counterintelligence division. Lord knows the the House and Senate intelligence committees say they've never been briefed on it. And so I, I think hindsight's twenty twenty. But you're right, Malcolm. The it's the it's the CI threat that's going to remain. And it's the CI question that needs to be answered about what went on, what is it that, that appears to have compromised the president, what is the vulnerability, and what is the ongoing threat from it? Just asking that question, even getting near the contours of that question, the president has taken a hammer to the FBI. We all know that. Robert Mueller did his investigation within the context of a president that would operate with dignity decency, respect of the branches of government and the bureaucracy of the United States. <laughs> That's not, that did not happen. Yeah. Okay. He, he found himself and maybe that was part of why they, they approved him so quickly. He found himself doing a very standard investigation and thought that the pro, you know, the probity of it and the seriousness of it would be taken serious by the rest of the nation. In the Donald Trump world, that doesn't work. It's an awesome counter-counterintelligence tool to constantly keep the investigators in fear of their jobs, in fear of their day job. The very question you have to ask, is the president of the United States a compromised person from a foreign intelligence agency? Let me tell you something. I just, I just finished a book, and I went to Putin's office in Dresden when he was a first-term human intelligence officer, and he did all the work. All the rest of the staff didn't. He went around and turned people left and right in Dresden. And then when he left, when the Soviet Union fell, 
he took all the names of every person that they had turned into spies. We're dealing with a nation state leader that is a expert in human intelligence. And we have a president of the United States who is the perfect mark. And as you said, counterintelligence wise, we're, I don't think we're ever going to get that answer until there's a new administration. If there's a Trump administration, we will never get that answer. That might be a good place to end. Well, I guess it's as good a place to end as any, though I would have happily listened to these three for another hour or more. Thank you very much to Frank, Malcolm, and Juliet. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast or even tell a friend about us. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. You can also hear special exclusive content for supporters at patreon.com slash talking feds. And you can also check us out on the web at talkingfeds.com. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in to this unique, novel, and I hope really fun episode of Talking Feds. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Jenny Josephson, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sam Trachtenberg and Sarah Philippoum. Thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.